You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies Staff Picks Edition. We did Hot Rod. We did Rise of the Guardians, two Isla Fisher movies. And this movie has a Fisher in it. A fisherman. But it doesn't have Isla Fisher. I decided to go a little off the beaten track as far as Isla Fisher movies go. Or as far as movies that people have heard of go. My pick was none other than a movie that is beloved among cinephiles and maybe not as well known among non-cinephiles. It is called Night of the Hunter. It is the only film ever directed by one Charles Lawton, the famous British actor who appeared in things like Witness for the Prosecution and Hobson's Choice. And you may know him as a early, mid-century, 20th century actor dude who was very fun in a lot of things. Mutiny on the Bounty. He's the captain. Uh, he's like a jowly British dude in a lot of imposing and authoritative, but also body like Timothy Spall sort of, or I don't know who I'd compare him to. He definitely would have been in the Harry Potter movies if they'd been made at his time. But he got one shot to direct, and he directed a movie that many people consider to be a classic, but he never got another shot because it did not make any money. And if you watch it, you can understand why, because it's kind of a hard movie to sell. It's a movie that defies classification, shall we say. But that's not going to stop us on this podcast from trying to classify it. Now, who are us? Who is us? We've met the podcasters, and they is us. I'm Nathan. That's Jake. Hi, Jake. Hey, what's up? And there's our very own Hunter himself, Ben Sulzer. Here I am. Guys, before we go forward, maybe we should try and explain a little bit like what this movie is, what genre it is. It's you almost don't want you almost want to do it the way that I did it with you guys, where I just showed it to you and I didn't give you anything because anything that you say, it's gonna create the wrong expectations. That's right. It's yeah. kind of a horror movie, but if you go in expecting a straight horror movie, you're not exactly gonna get it, even though you'll get some very suspense thriller. Yeah, it's kind of a thriller. It's kind of like a slice of American Americana or a small town satire. It's sort of like asking somebody to define the genre of it. Now, don't get the wrong idea in your head when I say this, but like a movie like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? What do you do with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou exactly? Is it a musical? Is it comedy? Is it? Okay, fine. Oh, Brother Where Art Thou is actually much, much easier to classify than this <laughs> no, but, but This I'm, is a comedy. <laughs> but in terms weird. of the fact that you could almost say that this movie, I mean, the Coen Brothers are a genre in and of themselves. We all sort of thought of them during this movie because right. it, it has a similar sort of odd combination of realism and exaggeration, sort of gothic exaggeration. Yeah, it's going to like, it's very sort of like symbolic, archetypal, myth-making, light versus dark, good versus evil, love versus hate. You have an angel of death and you have an angel of light and all this stuff about kids and all these characters that are types into themselves. And then you have all of this sort of real humanity too in the middle of it. Yeah. And it's... all kinds of things just sort of thrown in. These beautiful shots that just come out of nowhere, like the like beautifully composed shots that come out of nowhere uh -huh. that are just completely unexpected and right. don't feel like they fit, except the movie keeps doing it, so it all fits in this sort of like mosaic. It's like, it's yeah, it's more like a mosaic mm. of a film. Another thing I might compare it you to, know? kind of, although this doesn't do it justice either, is Huckleberry Finn. 
And that well, well I, one, I also thing, thought of East of Eden. Yeah, East of Eden. Yeah. For one thing, it's like it has a mythic sort of river journey, just like Huckleberry Finn. But also, it's got that kind of some scenes are pure, broad, satirical comedy, and then some te- scenes are like the depravity of man, like the yeah. scariest sort of uh-huh. yeah, it's sort of like stuff. It's I said mosaic. You could also say it's sort of episodic, but it's not episodic. It's a movie that's going somewhere with a through line. Start right. to finish, but you have all these sort of like subplots and beats that get hit, and there's no there there are no dangling threads. There's no dangling threads to any of the plot or the subplots. But it's just like, let me set the table here. What's going to happen? Are they going to escape with the old man on the river? The fish, the fisherman. We've set up all kinds of stuff around that. Well, we're going to close that loop. And force him down another path, and is stuff like that's like, and then you get this little window into this fisherman and his sad life and his dead wife and everything else. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like this little, and it is, and it's like a snippet of Americana, mm-hmm. right? Like in the of Depression era Americana, and you so you get these little pictures like you do in Huck Finn going down the river of oh, you're running into people, they're living their own lives. You've got you're entering in and out of these little worlds that have their own thing about them. And so you're going to meet this old lady and she's going to like, you're going to find out so much about her marriage and her life in a very short amount of time. And yeah, in some ways it's mm-hmm. very direct and almost. she's going to play a character, but it, with respect to our heroes, she's a caricature, right? So at one moment she's a caricature and on another moment, she's a very human normal person that you would recognize and that is a stand-in for a certain type of yeah yeah there's the movie's not afraid to make exaggerations out of people and then do something naturalistic with them in the next breath yeah and some scenes are like really shaky cam kind of about as naturalistic as you get in that era and then some scenes are just the height of almost silent era expressionist yeah yeah yeah, just like this is there's nothing realistic about this. And sometimes the performances veer in between. There's a woman that's very natural in later portions of the film, but then she basically monologues, does like a Shakespearean monologue to the camera. There's she opens the movie with a monologue. There's scenes where characters sing and it's feels almost like a musical, like it's not naturalistic. They wouldn't actually be singing that way in that voice at that moment. There's highly expressionistic stuff. There's the villain who's going to start seeing leaning on the everlasting arms in for a really long time as he stands outside of people's houses right. before he's thinking about killing kind them. of his thing this is like <laughs> you know it, it's sort of like I, I think what i said afterwards is like you one part of you wants hitchcock to have directed this movie but then it would have taken away roughed out so many of the so much of the color Mm-hmm. And it would have just turned it into a really awesome suspense thriller. And then another part of you wants Sergio, somebody like Sergio Leone to just sort of like linger and make that villain everything that kind of underlying him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you think, well, okay, well, that just makes you think about the Coen brothers. Um, and wouldn't it be cool to see their remake of this, except they would ruin the ending. Right. They wouldn't take the good side of the good versus evil equation very seriously or they wouldn't be able to do it justice no. probably it's really amazing actually how well the movie pulls off the good it really got me yeah no like, i mean it really yeah, I it got me and it kept getting me yeah yeah it isn't so now everybody knows the, can imagine this movie perfectly right <laughs> at, at its core and we'll do some context and then we'll actually talk about what we thought about it at its core the movie is the story 
of a boy whose dad is like a depression era bank robber or he does one heist he kills some guys played by peter graves yeah played by peter graves yeah that's weird what do we know right? peter graves from mission impossible, mission impossible. he's jim that's phelps and he's right. in all kinds of things yeah very square jawed kind of actor but he hides some money i won't say where in case you're gonna watch the movie you're gonna but, know right away yeah you'll know right away but i still it's more fun not to spoil it all right fine. he hides the money tell his tells his son he has to protect that secret with his life and then gets hauled off and to, goes and faces justice is he, hung meanwhile there's this psychotic from the very first scene we know that there is this psychotic traveling revivalist preacher dude who's really just a serial killer of women and he ends up in the same j- jail cell with the dude's father hears that there's money and then moves in on the family and is going to try and pass himself off as a preacher as a man of god he's going to try and woo the woman he's going to try and get the secret out of the kids and so it becomes kind of a domestic thriller, but that's I. Now you think you know what the movie, is, but you have no idea what the movie is because you'll buckle in for one kind of movie and then it'll switch, it'll and then you'll buckle in for that movie on you, yeah, and then and throwing monkey wrenches at you, mm-hmm. yeah. What's mom gonna do? Well, actually, mom's gonna be fully under preacher's sway, right, and just lay there as he kills her, right. <laughs> I spoilers. guess we're going full spoilers. spoilers. Sorry spoilers. about that. <laughs> I don't know how else to talk about the movie without talking about the things, though. Well, listen, Ben, is there anything else you want to say up top before we... I don't think so. It's a crazy movie. Yeah. Uh, maybe people just want to go watch it and come back. Would you guys recommend that they do so? Yeah. I I think this is... Man, this is just a movie to have watched. and Just check uh, it off your he, list he, or whatever. He, he, here's what I'll say. I, I hated it. I hated it almost the whole way through. And then I also left it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I cannot, I couldn't, I really thought this would be a kind of movie I might fall asleep in. I could not take my eyes off of it. I could not stop paying attention. Like it had me engaged start to finish. And there's just a lot, there's just a lot. And it's an amazing sort of spectacle of a thing that there's nothing else like it. Yeah. I agree. You've never seen anything like this movie. Yep. If you're the kind of person who's like, I want to try something new and I don't believe that there's anything new at the movies, you're wrong because yep. you haven't seen this movie yet. <laughs> <laughs> if you like Americana, if you like if you like Hitchcock, if you like the Coen brothers, if you like Flannery O'Connor, maybe it's got flavors of all those things. Although mm-hmm. don't expect straight whatever anything. your favorite thing is that I just named. Yeah, what yeah. Just it will often appear in lists of horror movies. It is a pretty bleak and a scary movie in some places. And there are things that are just silly in what they do that you just laugh out loud at as mm-hmm. well. Like, it's not like everything is pulled off seamlessly or whatever, but... No, it takes some big swings. I don't know whether it connects with every one of them, but this movie has an interesting story, so let me tell that story. Baggage check, I guess we can do real quick before I do that. It doesn't matter! It's in the past! <laughs> Yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. What baggage did you guys bring to Night of the Hunter? Nothing. A movie I, I told you we were going to watch this <clears throat> afternoon, and then we watched it. It was a title I had heard. I had the idea it was something kind of odd. I'd never heard of it. I know Robert Mitchum primarily from John Wayne movies. I did not know what to expect. Started out with sort of a Grapes of Wrath vibe. And I thought, okay, Depression era, something. But then off we went. Off we went. (laughs) Uh, I came to this movie having, as a kid, 
loving Frankenstein and Dracula. And this movie often, as I said, ends up on lists of the greatest horror movies, which is, I'm not torn as to whether it belongs there or not. But in any case, I came to it expecting that and kind of got that, but also got something else. And it's really lived with me over the years. I hadn't actually seen it in a couple decades, but it lived with me so much that I, some of the imagery in particular, including one very famous creepy image has lived with me all these years. And so I, I, yeah. I got the Blu-ray or whatever at a certain point intending to watch it. And then I thought, hey, I'll watch it with the guys and make it my staff pick. And man, it's a much richer movie than I actually knew. So the story of the movie, a little bit of context for you. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Our story begins with the real-life serial killer, Harry F. Powers, born 1893, was hanged by the neck until he was dead in 1932. Harry Powers would answer those Lonely Hearts advertisements, people looking for love, and basically lure women and children to their death, murder them for their money. And that story hit the news. And then this guy named Davis Grubb, an NBC radio writer, decided to write a novel in 1940 based on this. And this novel was Night of the Hunter, which came out in 1953 and was a National Book Award finalist in 1955. Basically tells the same story that the novel does, or that the movie does. The interesting thing about the novel is that it kind of feels, and I've not read the whole thing, I just read a little bit of it, but it's sort of mythopoetic and exists in this heightened, ornate language, and there are no quotation marks on the dialogue, which reminds one terribly of Cormac McCarthy. It almost feels, you know, they always say, steal where no one's looking. That's like a standard Artists' advice, don't steal from the same 10 people that everybody else is stealing from. Steal where no one's looking. I wonder if Cormac McCarthy stole from Davis Grubb. Anyway, it is gothic. It is a little bit melodramatic. It is reaching for heightened style. And so you can see how this movie would be a good approximation of that in film form. But the movie is really what we remember. The book has not survived the test of time. I don't even know that it's still in print. I looked for it. I actually, I think it is still in print. You can find like the Night of the Hunter printing the movie tie-in for people that like movies. But that'll probably go out of print because there's just not a lot of people that want to read the Night of the Hunter. I mean, how many people have even heard of the book? But in any case, that is the first piece of the puzzle. The next piece of the puzzle is Charles Lawton, the British-American actor who trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and began appearing in the, on the stage in like the 1920s was famously married to Elsa Lancaster, the bride of Frankenstein herself, also the first nanny that does not work out that the children scare off before Mary Poppins comes along. If you know classic film, you've seen Elsa Lancaster a million times. You've also, if you know classic film, seen Charles Lawton a million times. He was like a Shakespearean actor at the Old Vic, and then he went to Broadway, and then he went to Hollywood, and He's famous for The Private Life of Henry VIII, and he is, like, born to play. If you know Charles Lawton, he's, like, a big, jowly, loud, epicurean kind of presence. And so made to play characters like Henry VIII, 
big, robust kind of British fellows who scream and shout and impose their will on everyone. One of those guys. He was also nominated for playing Captain Bly in Mutiny on the Bounty, another one of those kinds of characters. And I think on this podcast, we've talked about him as the barrister in Witness for the Prosecution. But he did Hitchcock, early Hitchcock, Jamaica Inn. He played the best Quasimodo in... The 1939 version of Hunchback of Notre Dame with Maureen O'Hara as the gypsy lady. And he's just a very successful theater and film actor. An actor's actor. A Laurence Olivier type. Or I think I saw on our old friend Wikipedia that Daniel Day-Lewis. Here, I'll pull it up. Daniel Day-Lewis said that Lawton was one of his inspirations, saying, quote, he was probably the greatest film actor who came from that period of time. He had something quite remarkable. His generosity as an actor, he fed himself into his work. As an actor, you cannot take your eyes off him. I could certainly take my ears off of your inane statement there, Mr. Day-Lewis. But you get the point. Like, Lawton is beloved, and, and rightfully so. Wonderful British velvety kind of voice. You never really know how much wish fulfillment goes into the... Histori- historical reevaluation of people like this as gay. Lawton comes across as very gay in many of his roles and in his kind of public persona. And a lot of people have come forward since his death and said that he was bisexual, that his marriage, while happy with Elsa Lancaster, was really just the facade. He and Lancaster did not have children. And there's actually three different reasons why Lancaster is uh, supposed to have not had kids. One was because she had a botched abortion early in her career and could not. In other words, she told a biographer she simply does, didn't want one, want children. And the third was that her husband was gay and they were only sort of together as you know what. So in any case, that's Charles Lawton. Another favorite of mine, James Whale's The Old Dark House film that was made in between Whale making Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And also in there with The Invisible Man, this really crazy universal thriller with all these kooky kind of eccentric kind of homosexual characters running around in a haunted house. So that's Charles Lawton. He's really successful at absolutely everything he did. Really, one of the only black marks on his otherwise illustrious career was the fact that the movie that we're talking about today, Night of the Hunter, did not make any money and basically was not considered a success at its time, but of course now everybody talks about it as a tremendous success, one of maybe the greatest movies ever made, and this unique kind of what could have been, not just in terms of what could have been for Lawton's career if the movie had been successful and he'd been allowed to make other movies, but just a kind of different way of making movies. Like if this had been successful, maybe we could have gotten away a little bit from naturalism, from the more straightforward way of telling stories and kind of brought a little bit of the gothic back, brought a little bit of this heightened reality back, brought a little bit of the silent movie sensibility back into modern cinema, sort of moving in the more cinema verite direction of the 1960s. Now, I don't actually think, and nobody actually thinks that this one movie or even a movement born out of this one movie would have totally changed things. But it's always interesting when someone makes movies that sort of exist outside of the established vocabulary of cinema at the time. Wes Anderson is somebody that you love him or hate him. Or Tim Burton. They've got these visual styles that kind of place them outside of what everyone else 
is doing. And you know that when you're in the, watching one of their, your movies, you're entering into a different world, a slightly different universe. None of the hunters like that. It'd be interesting to see if Lawton would have gotten it all out of his system or if he would have gone on to do more things like that. Obviously, he's bringing stage influences. He's bringing this ability to see things in a heightened or in a melodramatic way. And he knows how to make material work. And he's drawing on a very heightened kind of film or uh, book. Keep using the word heightened. I think the word I actually should use is expressionistic, right? It's not strictly realistic. It's expressionistic. A lot of it is subjective feeling. It's the kind of mythology that the characters tell about themselves. Selves. My computer is dinging. I do apologize. Reverend Harry Powell is larger than life. The children are caught in a fairy tale. Mrs. Whatever-Face, the lady at the end of the movie, she's like Whistler's mother or something like that. It's all sort of not portrayed the way that it would actually look if you were actually there. It's heightened. Anyway, basically what happened is this guy named Harold Matson, a literary agent, sent a copy of the novel to Paul Gregory who was the producer of this film. And Gregory sent the book to Lawton, who described it as a nightmarish mother goose story. You'll see that quote a lot if you read anything about Night of the Hunter. And Lawton actually got together with Davis Grubb, the author of this book, and they got on like two peas in a pod. They both had very similar sensibilities. Apparently, Grubb was, yeah, Grubb was also a illustrator and so he would draw sketches to kind of inspire himself and they ended up using a lot of these pictures and they informed the gothic look of this film so lawton wanted grubb to just write the screenplay but the studio was not having that so they went ahead and hired another big name who we won't talk about that much because i don't know how much he actually worked on this movie but they hired james Agee, who wrote a death in the family which won a pulitzer and uh, was the screenwriter for the African Queen, and was just kind of this journalist, poet, man about town, kind of James Agee. He's one of those names that'll just pop up in pop culture or cultural histories of the time. He's just one of those dudes. The reason I don't want to talk about him too much is because apparently he handed in this giant script, and then Lawton just wrote the heck out of it, rewrote it himself, and wanted Agee to be credited, did not want to take the credit for himself but a lot of people have said, actually, A.G. didn't do anything. Kind of like William Faulkner's name is on various screenplays. There are these guys, Raymond Chandler, people who are famous names for other reasons, literary names, who write screenplays or do things. And a lot of times their work isn't actually used, but you still kind of want the prestige of having their name attached to it. So A.G. is one of those kinds of things. Anyway, one of the problems they have is that this novel is all about a reverend who is also an evil serial killer. And you can't do that according to the production code at the time. So they had to tone it down a little bit. They had to make the Reverend a little bit more of a fraud than he actually is in the novel. You have to have him clearly not be an ordained minister. I don't think he actually quotes a lot of scripture. They basically just toned down the Christianity, the actual Christianity that Reverend Powell was using to manipulate other people because they wanted to make it really clear. This guy is not an actual Christian, which of course is dumb. The production code is dumb because lots of people use scripture hypocritically. There are people, stories of people in scripture, like the Pharisees, like Judas, who use the ideas from scripture 
hypocritically in, in order to do something evil. But then you have characters like, what is her name? Willa Harper, who are true Christians. And this story, while you're afraid it's not going to in the early going, it actually does portray good. So I think it would have been okay for it to also portray evil. But anyway, we'll have more of our actual discussion. But Lawton, of course, came up during silent films. And so he really wanted, like, that was the movie making that he grew up watching, that he grew up really informed by. And much in the way that your Spielbergs and Lucas wanted to recapture the magic of the films that they saw in their childhood, Lawton wanted to recapture the magic of the silent films, particularly D.W. Griffith, the guy who did Birth of a Nation, Intolerance, all these masterpieces from the teens and 20s. And Lawton really wanted to do that. He wanted to make a modern talking picture in the way, in the, once again, heightened expressionist way that a silent film would have been made. And so it's this really interesting mix. And now we bring in our last big piece of the puzzle. I suppose there's a few more, but Robert Mitchum is the coolest actor of mid-century Hollywood. He's got these lazy eyes, and he's a real handsome dude. He's got, how else does one say it? He's got a lot of masculine virility, but in this very sort of cool, detached, ironic style, right? This is a guy that could kill you with his bare hands, like in all of his movies. He's a guy who could kill you with his bare hands, but he's too lazy. He's too drunk. He's too whatever. People, our listeners, might remember him as the villain in the original Cape Fear squaring off against Gregory Peck, or probably if, if you're a dad movie fan, you've seen him in El Dorado as John Wayne's friend, the drunk sheriff, and Mitchum, just one of the best, one of the coolest. My favorite film of his by far, well, Night of the Hunter probably, but my favorite film that's not Night of the Hunter is Out of the Past, which is just the quintessential noir film, black and white shadows and witty cutting dialogue and everybody smoking cigarettes it's got jane greer and kirk douglas and just incredibly existential bordering on nihilistic just like the coolest movie so influential you know it uses a lot about that kind of flashback we're gonna hear the detective give the voiceover as he goes about his case just really cool stuff and mitchum was the kind of guy that could pull that kind of stuff up off. He's the boss in Scrooged. Anybody remember that? I'm just trying to pull touchstones that people might know. He's Bill Murray's boss, the head of the studio or whatever in Scrooged, a terrible movie. But nobody kind of played world-weary, cynical, manly men like Mitchum. I just, I love the guy to pieces. He's one of those actors I'll watch in anything. And he made a lot of stuff. He liked to cash those paychecks so you can watch him in a lot of stuff and not all of his stuff is good, but he's always incredible. And this role is completely atypical. He generally played heroes. I mean, he did play a couple of great villains. One of his other fondly remembered films, as I said, is Cape Fear in 1962, where he plays a rapist and killer who is after Gregory Peck's wife and daughter, basically. It's a really dark movie. But I would say in terms of just kind of the snaky malevolence, I don't think he ever really did anything like Harry Powers again. He's really interesting casting, and Lawton was the kind of guy that was very aware of this in terms of he's sexy. He's a star. He's bringing a lot, a ton, a metric ton of sexual charisma 
to this role. And you could obviously go a different way with this preacher character. He could be kind of portly. He could be kind of slimy. He could be bookish and defeat. I mean, there's actually a lot of different ways you could play an evil snake oil salesman preacher type character. But playing him with just pure sexual magnetism, especially for a guy who has so many sex problems, is just (laughs) really diabolical (coughs) and really great. Okay, I keep promising that I don't have any more puzzle pieces to give, but there's also the puzzle piece of Lillian Gish, who, if you're a silent film fan, which you should be, she was like, she played the babe, the, the, the leading lady in Intolerance, Birth of a Nation, Broken Blossoms. Like, you can find all these movies where she's got, like, the stark white makeup and the painted lips, I'm making her sound like a geisha, but you just know she's got the makeup style of, like, a beautiful early film actress, and she plays, like, the girl that all the guys are fighting over. She's the beautiful, virginal girl. One of the great female movie stars, but obviously she had done sound pictures, but she hadn't really aged into being able to be a star once talkies came around, kind of had the singing in the rain thing happen to her. Not that she has a bad voice, but she just, her star persona did not cross the ocean into talking pictures. But Lawton loves silent movies, and he thinks of her for this role. And she's just perfect, obviously. She's perfect. So they assemble those pieces. They shoot the movie. They do not go to real Appalachian locations. They mostly create all this stuff in the set with maybe a few shots done in West Virginia. And Lawton actually directs it like a silent film. He lets the camera just run and shouts instructions at the people sort of telling them what to do. Like the way you shoot a silent movie is you just have the guy crank the camera and then you just say, all right, you walk over there. Now you yell at him. Now you do this. You don't even need a script. You can just like Charlie Chaplin's directing a movie. He can just be yelling, like standing off stage in a scene he's not in and just yelling at the other actors to do what they're supposed to do. Right. I mean, we've probably seen pastiches or humorous versions of this. All right, Anne, now you're scared. You're trembling. He's approaching you. Oh, he's evil. You know, it's like you're giving those kinds of instructions to the leading lady. Oh, I should say, I'm sorry. I forgot another puzzle piece. We've got Shelly Winters here. Shelly Winters, she plays the kid's mom, and she was a method actress. She was somebody who came out of the same school that was very exciting at the time that like Marlon Brando and James Dean and all those guys were coming out of. She's somebody who wants to internalize her character and go deep. So you've got Mitchum, who's just pure movie star charisma, and you've got Shelly Winters, who's this method actress, and then you've got Lawton, who wants to film everything like a silent film and go for heightened theatrical, over-the-top effects. And, you know, needless to say, it was a little difficult for her, but it is really this interesting contrast of styles that should not work, but I think it does work. It's like she's a very realistic character trapped in this very heightened world, and spoiler alert, she may or may not survive it. it. Lawton, being an actor, was a good director of actors, and a lot of the actors said this was a great experience. He understood their fears. He understood their phobias. He wasn't going to ram anything down their throat necessarily that they could not do. This film was shot by Stanley Cortez, who also shot The Magnificent Ambersons, had worked with Orson Welles, and was just willing to do all this crazy experimentation to try and get this gothic, influenced by German expressionist films, look 
So they're shooting on sound stages. There's actually a lot of visual effects and special effects in this movie, model work, uh, stuff like that. And then you had Walter Schumann, one of the great film composers, did things like the Dragnet theme, come up with this wackadoodle score for the movie. This is very expressionistic, but also has these weird, creepy lullabies. And this movie is almost like a musical. There's that pretty fly song that the girl sings when they're going down the river. And anyway, they the studio buys a book that's basically an arty book, but has been billed as a thriller. They hire some of the most arty people of the time to make the film. And then they are surprised when they get an art movie. And this movie was a big fat failure with audiences at the time and with critics at the time. And Lawton really took it hard, never wanted to make another movie. The Legion of Decency gave the film B because it degraded marriage. Like this movie was just in some ways, I guess behind its time, like the world had moved on from the expressionistic silent era in some ways ahead of its time. Like it wanted to deal with more adult themes in a way that people just weren't ready. Who knows? But people did not get it. They did not get it. And this movie only really caught on in the 1970s when all the movies were experimental anyway and all the critics were these young people that liked experimental movies and liked darkness and seediness and evil. And it's easy to sort of look down your nose when you watch this film and you see how truly brilliant this movie is. It is easy to look down at your nose at the people at that time who didn't get it. But also, how do you market this movie? How do you advertise it? How do you sell it to people without creating, as, as we were, we've already talked about, and we'll talk about some more, like it's so hard to even describe this movie without creating false expectations. If you tell people that it's a horror movie, they might be disappointed because it's not exactly a horror movie. If you tell them that it's a fairy tale, they might be disappointed. If you tell them it's a drama, well, it's a pretty weird drama. It's just like there's not a good way to not set people up to dislike this movie. It is kind of the, a movie that almost has to be discovered after the fact. You don't want to get dressed up and go out and expect a certain kind of feeling from this movie because you're not going to get it. But if you catch it on TV and you're not sure what it is and then you just vibe with it or somebody shows it to you, you might really like it. It might be one of your favorites. If I put Harry, Henry Powell, I, I've called him Harry Powell sometimes in this podcast, but they made him their number 29 on their 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. Uh, this movie also came in on 34 on their 100 Years, 100 Thrills list, which again, is it a thriller? Yeah, it's got some thrilling parts, but I don't know. Unfortunately, it was big back, black spot, spot on Lawton's career. He never made another film, which is just a tragedy because it would have been really interesting to see what else he would have made. He's obviously a really talented guy. Mitchum kept working. Shelley Winters kept working. It is sweet. I, one other random thing that I didn't fit into the body of this, they're using kids who aren't necessarily professional actors. And uh, if you get the Criterion edition of this disc, you can watch like all this footage because Lawton just kept the camera rolling and we still have that footage, which is amazing. So you can watch Mitchum work with these kids and Lawton work with the kids. And the thing that you'll see over and over again is that Lawton has no patience for them. But Mitchum, for all his on-screen villainy and for all his kind of cool masculine energy you, you wouldn't necessarily expect this guy to be good with kids but he's great he basically directs the kids himself he's really sweet with them 
and really helps them get good performances while also playing this character that wants to murder them for their money. So that is the film. Roger Ebert wrote, quote, what a compelling, frightening, and beautiful film it is and how well it has survived this period. Many films of the mid-1950s, even the good ones, seem somehow dated now, but by setting this his story in an invented movie world outside conventional realism, Lawton gave it a timelessness. It is one of the most frightening of movies with one of the most inf- unforgettable of villains. And on both of these scores, it holds up well after four decades. Now, people do sneer sometimes, modern critics do sneer at some of the more sentimental stuff, some of the good part of the good versus evil equation, but we ain't going to sneer at this, I don't think. In any case, that is context for Night of the Hunter. Well, guys, it's time to talk about the movie, and this will be full spoilers. What was your individual points of view on the film? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. A new fantastic point of view. Good as a point of view, anyway. Ben, we'll start with you. What did you think about Night of the Hunter? Jake said way back in the top of the show or something that he hated it and he loved it. I think, think I had that experience, too. Kind of hated it, fascinated, wasn't sure if I was watching a train wreck or something that knew what it was doing, but it was weird and interesting. Shot to shot, scene to scene, it was totally gripping. And yeah, I wasn't sure that the movie knew what it was until we got to the end. And then I, I was like, okay, kind of love this. And it does, it did know what it was doing in some sense. It did have a coherent through line, not just plot, but theme. It had a theme. I think the theme of the movie is just how the world fails to protect children and how we ought to. You'd have some good evidence considering there's at least two speeches in the movie. where <laughs> and, they, and they start and end the movie. Right. Yes. <laughs> where, the person, where the character looks at the camera and says, now the theme of the movie is. <laughs> right. And I think if you watch the movie that way, it makes sense. But it is a, it's a really weird idea because it means that the plot just goes... It just takes you on all these journeys that you don't expect. The movie could have stopped any number of places and just been a, a one kind of thing at any point, but it just kept going. Yeah. And then I it, mean, Hitchcock yeah. would have just had the boy shoot the yeah. the dude in the house, yes. and the movie would have ended there. Yeah, that's right. 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 And then the boy's the hero, and that's the end of the movie. You've got some thrilling scenes. You get to the whatever mm-hmm. he finds. Right. He puts a gun in his pocket at the fisherman's house. He's coming out to him in the boat and then pop and then that's the movie or you know, whatever, something like that. That's the end of the movie. And then there's this whole right. other half of the movie that happens next. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And I liked that a lot. I was expecting that actually. I was yeah. like, the boy's about to outsmart him, kill him, do something to stop him. But no, actually, they're just going to run. These are just kids. The boy never becomes your action hero. He doesn't pick up the gun and shoot the bad guy. Actually, what happens is he finds his way to... The one good adult we meet in the movie. We're in full spoilers now, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's this lady who's actually going to care for them, discipline them, treat them with dignity. But also as a child. Evil, treat them as children. Yeah, it's not like, and you realize the movie knew all along the dad sucks, the mom sucks, obviously the psycho sucks. The the, townsfolk sucks. The townsfolk are awful, especially this one hilarious old woman who you just hate. Yeah, she's I mean, she's, she's really funny. She's a hundred percent Cohen Brothers. Yes, like that's the kind of thing that they do. Here's this funny person 
who's like nails on a chalkboard, but she's funny, but you hate her, but she's funny, but you hate her. That kind of right. character. Every time she comes time. on screen, she's going to give you a moment that you just like. She's just, going to say the wrong thing. You're going to cringe thing. and laugh and also just hate her guts. She it, says she doesn't understand how anyone can be can enjoy lovemaking. Basically, she's being a little elliptical, but not that much. And then she says, I've been married for 40 years. The whole My whole life, I just lay there and think about my canning. Um <laughs> It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> the, it's, the stuff that they put in this movie and try to put, what was the year again? 1955, 56, did we say? Yeah, sorry, 1955. Yeah, so, I don't know. It's the amount of stuff they threw in there. There's some really direct phallic imagery. <laughs> There's, yeah. you don't have to think too hard to figure out what some of the symbols, <laughs> some of the visual motifs in this film. Yeah, but it become, but it feels by the end a very deliberate movie about innocence and... Protecting it or not, right. stealing it versus protecting it, being a predator, being a fool, being unwilling to protect love and protect the kids in your community, well, your family. You know, even the you said you know the movies knows that the dad sucks, right? The whole yeah. movie, John is like trying to keep dad's secret, trying That's to keep right. dad's secret, trying to do the right thing as he understands it, which is right. just remember his dad and keep dad's secret, mm-hmm. and it's what gets him in all the danger that he's in. Mm-hmm. It's dad's secret. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the old lady says, it's amazing how children will accept whatever lot they're mm. given, right? But John's actual turn, John's actual growth is the moment where the psycho finally gets arrested. And mm-hmm. he goes and he throws all the money on the psycho and just says, it's too much, it's too much, it's too much. And it's not the money that's too much, it's the burden of carrying dad's secret mm-hmm. the whole time. right? That's right. And that's what our angel of light at the end frees him from. Right. So the dad, To just be a boy. Mm-hmm. And the kind of boy that can become a man. Yeah. The dad cripples him at the beginning of the movie with this awful guilt. And then the dad is a total fool exposing secrets to this predator in the cell with him. With no awareness and not even... And to, just like total selfishness. Just... Sets up all three of the members of his family to die, basically. That's right. Yeah. At the hands Puts of them a in psycho, bed with a psychopath. Which anyone would have, should have known with a lick of sense. Here's this guy who's obviously nuts, and he doesn't care. Like, like the dad doesn't even think of it. He's just too cool for school. He never he never broke even before he was executed. Yeah, no, it's very pointed. I mean, there's uh, this kid has, is, has the burden of trying to be wise beyond his years, trying. And then the first moment that he meets this old lady, this angel of light, I don't think it's a throwaway gag. She grabs a switch and like forces the kids to, mm-hmm. to join her little band of kids that she takes care of. And then the next shot, she's bathing him and then he tries to run off and she spanks him. Yep. And it's just like, okay, you're just a kid, actually. You're just a kid. And this lady loves you and she's going to discipline you. <laughs> and she's also going to give you the tools that you need to become a man. Yeah. Which, but you're actually not there yet, and you shouldn't have to carry any of these burdens, and you need an adult just in your corner. She's going to believe you. She's going to stand in. She's going to protect you. She's going to listen to you. She's going to show you love. She's going to help you reframe your life through the lens of the Bible, mm-hmm. <laughs> which she deliberately which literally does. literally happens, right? Like she yeah. literally is like, well, I guess these kids who came up out of the river who are orphans need some handles for their life, so I'm just going to tell the story of Moses getting drawn out of the water. And then later she tells the story of Jesus being persecuted by Herod hunting Jesus. And you see the boy latch onto it. And so it's like, John can't take it. So he leaves and goes and stands out on the porch. She lets him. She keeps telling the story in his hearing. Comes back in. She tells her, get an apple for me and one for yourself. And it's a moment. And he sits and he like touches her hand and asks for the story again. He's latching onto it. 
And so then later at the end of the movie when everything's right and they're all giving Christmas presents and he doesn't have one, he goes and finds an apple to give to her. Yeah, it's really touching. It's really, really <laughs> sweet. It's really touching. It's really, it sounds hack maybe the way that I just said it, but it's really beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Everything about that, this old widow or whatever she is taking care of these kids, she's just like, she's just awesome. She's awesome. Yep. She actually loves the Bible. I mean, it's so weird. It is to really be talking about weird. a movie that has these things. She wants the kids to go to church. Like she, she's not just a, a loner Christian by herself. Like there's so many ways she this pre- movie she could presents, go wrong. Initially, she presents hard. Right. The first thing we see is get out of that boat. I'm gonna get a switch if you don't come up here. She's gonna whip them up the, the bank up to her house. <laughs> she's gonna bathe them. She's gonna spank John as soon as he tries to get out of the water. She's gonna present as sort of like a buttoned up church lady of which we've had our fill already we've had our movie. fill of these ladies throughout this entire movie this movie has part of why you hate it as a christian for the first half or however long of this movie is it just feels like it hates god and it hates christians right because it's just everybody who has anything to do with god is the most idiotic bumbling cohen brothers hypocritical mm. idiot fallen prey to a predator who's just manipulating the crap out of all of them who's not even very good at his job yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. One, one He's big, an obvious predator. One of the big twists of the movie is that this guy who is like an archetype of evil, of devilish evil, is actually a ridiculous buffoon who ends the movie yelping. He might as well be grabbing his bottom as he runs. It's from, like a Looney Tunes yeah, character. He's like a Looney Tunes character. <laughs> he is. He's like a Looney Tunes character. He got shot in the butt or something right. like that. And he's like hopping around and yelping. At worst, he's a feral <laughs> animal. He's not. Evil is actually very mundane and stupid. <sighs> it, yeah. And, but this lady, you were saying she's actually not the art, the, she's the, none of that, right? You have the older girl that she's taken in. Who's like blossoming into a woman. She's and, blossoming into a woman. She's been telling lies about going to sewing classes, but she's been running into town to see men. And she just breaks down and confesses it to her. And she's like, you're going to whoop me or you're going to yell at me or something like that. And she breaks down. And she just sort of holds her and says... Another very moving moment. It was another very (laughs) moving moment. She just sort of holds her and says, sweetheart, you're just looking for love in the only broken, stupid, idiotic way you know how. And she says it about like that. Those aren't the Mm -hmm. exact words, but she says... it's basically that. But it's basically that. Well, and then you see this girl's attracted to the devil. And then then she's like, and it's not wrong to want love or Mm -hmm. to look for love. It's not. It's not. You You were just looking in the wrong places. And then, well, this, so this so this girl all throughout the movie, down to the scene when the reverend's being led away to be executed, she's she lusts after him. Um, and Robert Mitchum, if you don't know, is a very magnetic and handsome psychopath. He has real sexual charisma, yeah. which is one of the things that makes the movie scary and makes it work. But the, you know, this pubescent girl is really into him, and so you think like the whole movie is just going to give you dirty sex. But this old lady is healthy there too. She gives Ruby a little. Her Christmas present's like a brooch, right? Yeah, a, a pretty bauble mm-hmm. of yeah. the kind that was enticing to Ruby when bad boys and the Reverend were using them against her. Yep. But, it's, but it's like as if the old lady's saying, yes, it's okay to be a sexual creature. It's okay to grow up. It's, it's okay, okay to, to want to be attractive to men. Right. It's okay to want to be beautiful and to wear beautiful things. Like all those things are okay. You just have to do them in the right way. Yeah, which is just so much more sophisticated than and lovable than you expect and good than you mm-hmm. than, than you expect this movie to be yeah she just has real she has real wisdom and real love and care for these kids that actually shines through in a movie that 
you just don't expect it. You don't expect that level of wisdom. And if the girl had been caught, maybe you know that this woman might have done something differently. But mm. what she did was she conf- she came on her own, she confessed it, and she just sort of broke down crying in her lap. And that's yeah, why we, we, we've that. already seen that this woman is not above cutting a switch. That's the first right. thing we learn about her. Right. But she's so, she just reads the room, mm. you know? And yeah. she just she feels like a genuinely good maternal figure. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, our predator finally shows. And we're talking about probably the last 20 minutes of this movie. That's mm-hmm. right. Everything we've talked about is. No, it's, it's like the movie's about 90 minutes and the DVD skipped. So I, I had a chance to look at the time code. It's 60 minutes of hell and no one trusts the kids and this predator is after them. And then it's a half hour of they finally find peace. They start this. down the river and the, yeah, and they finally. Yeah. yeah. But, excuse me, yeah, and then the predator shows up and starts to act like he's their dad. And she just immediately says, Yeah, no. <laughs> no you're, not, you're not their dad and you ain't no reverend either. You're not a preacher either. She believes the little boy as soon as he tells her. Yeah. He's not my dad. And she's like, oh, yeah, of course he's not. Yeah. She's already suspicious, but. And then you have a scene that I think when I saw it as a kid or as a teenager, I didn't like because it felt anticlimactic. But now I kind of love how anticlimactic it's designed to be, which is the reverend comes back at night and you expect kind of a suspense set piece. And I suppose it is. But it is at first because he's just sitting out there on a stump. It's pretty creepy. Everybody's huddled inside. Old lady's on the porch with her shotgun. And he's sitting outside under the moonlight on a stump. Staring into the windows of the house, singing, leaning on the everlasting arms, and there's nothing else but crickets going on. And he's singing it for a long time. We're just cutting back between mm-hmm. three three shots, a, a behind a behind shot of him in the whole house, just sitting there singing. Her on the porch with her gun, and then the kids all huddled together inside the house. We just keep cutting back and forth between those three shots, and then <laughs> the old lady. <laughs> Starts to sing. Starts to sing and joins in into, in a duet with him. As Ben said, it's like she's reclaiming the song or right. yeah. saying, this is my song. <laughs> <laughs> this is, and she she's, sings in it. She's singing it and she means it. Well, she And she's doing the counter melody, which is leaning on Jesus. He's yeah. just doing the more generic stuff. And then she yeah. starts saying, leaning on Jesus, leaning. And then <laughs> you have this great creepy moment where the candle gets blown out and then the reverend, for a second, the window is illuminated so that you can't see him in the background. The candle gets blown out and then he's, he's, gone. he's gone, which is pretty great horror movie stuff. Mm-hmm. But then when the final confrontation happens, this guy doesn't stand a chance. Like the forces of evil are just toast before actual good. Like you said, Ben, the only reason this guy ever made any headway in life is because he was surrounded by idiots that didn't see through his yeah. obvious. Yeah. Well, he real, just preys on weak women. Right. Right. It is vulnerable that, people. It is that scripture verse, right? It's the guy, it's like their, their evil is going to be obvious to everyone. They're going to prey on weak women. Like if you have your eyes open at all, you'll see them. It's not that hard. Right. Like this is that guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the woman, the, our hero woman says it multiple times. She's like, women are so stupid or something like that. Yeah. So, a heartwarming film. A heartwarming film. I mean, it actually is in a it's bizarre way. One of the most heartwarming films I've ever seen, I think. It's pretty amazing in how it, man, so many setups and so many payoffs and so many wraparounds. In like, such a short, condensed yes, period of time. In 90 minutes. Yeah. Like you can reframe the movie. At, you know, he tells the story a couple times of his knuckle tattoos of mm-hmm. love and hate and well, that's the, and he tells it like, it looks like hate's going to win. It looks like hate's going to win. 
Hate's gonna try to kill everybody, but in the end, well, oh, oh, love comes out on top. And it's like, well, that's the plot of the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> you didn't see it coming, came out of nowhere. And then for an hour, you just have hate. Right. Wrangling, that's, that's just strangling everybody, <laughs> slicing mom's throat and dumping her into the river. Mm-hmm. Like all of it. Stalking the kids through the house, stalking them through the, 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 the open field, the, stalking them through the marsh, right? Stalking them down the river, like it's crazy. Lying to everybody. When mom's not around, I'll rip your arm off, you wretched little, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, to the children. <laughs> yeah, I mean, miserable little wretch. It puts you in this the, little tiny little girl. It really makes you live. For fortunately, it's a short movie. It doesn't milk these things like a bad new movie would, but it does make you live with like in in the hands of an abusee, the kid whose mom won't believe him because his dad acts one way around her, his fake dad, and then acts differently around him. It's just like these classic horrible dynamics that are really mm-hmm. depressing. Yeah, and everything's on poor little John who can't be more than eight or nine years old. Right. And he's the only one who's got any sense about him. And the only guiding star he has is dad saying, keep the secret. Yeah. Dad <laughs> Which is sucks. what a miserable guiding star. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, man. Well, what else to say about this movie? I mean, I do love the performances. They are a weird mix between very arch and over the top and fairly de- realistic. I mean, Mitchum is a great villain. I mean, he does often make classic movie villain top five lists. And yeah. I think there's a good reason. He's great. But as we've said, he he does a great job of sort of being the personification of evil, but also in his own way being just pathetic. Yeah. Well, and as you just said, Jake, when we were talking after, the whole history is there implicitly. Like, this is another broken little boy that's, that's right. been ruined by the world one way or another. That's right. He he. It's like we have... Uh, you know, sort of our opening scene is like, oh no, some kids are playing. Oh no, a woman is found dead in the cellar. Oh, cut to the bad guy. Bah, bah, bah. Right, driving along in his car. <laughs> and, but where's he going to go? He's going to go to a burlesque and he's going to like, he's like stoking the fires of his anger, his inner child, his demons. His you know? lust. His, his le- all of those things. And he's going to, he's going to be there doing that. It's just all just like this, weird arrested development it's not hard to imagine you know his mom was some form of loose woman or prostitute or something that exposed him to things and he was harmed and now he's just going around killing his mom taking revenge on all women on all women and i mean it is so arch like it begins with him literally talking to god and saying well god you hate lacy things you hate just yeah here's my deal and then and then He's watching a burlesque dancer. He's got this switchblade that's like his weapon through the movie, and he it's in his pocket. And then in his it, hands in his pocket, and his pockets near his crotch, and the switchblade rips through. He manages to open the switchblade, and it just yeah shoots straight through his jacket pocket in a very phallic gesture. <laughs> yeah, which makes the movie sound tawdry. Is it's like you cannot describe this movie to describe it is to make people <laughs> think it's one thing when it's not. When it's not, yeah. That's that sounds awfully tawdry. What I just said, and I suppose it is, but it has a reason to be in the movie. Like it makes sense once once you understand the design of the movie, you kind of it's one of those movies that you don't necessarily want to watch a second time, but it does work a different way when you watch it a second time. Once you know mm-hmm. what it's doing, I mean, I'm glad I hadn't seen it for a long time. It was kind of nice to know sort of the design, like to know enough to have my bearings, but also 
Yeah. I'm glad I'd never seen it and was just along for the ride. The ride. The mom, talking about the performances, the mom is really great. As Man, a she's very, amazing. Very sad, recognizable person. Just the. Yeah. She has such an awesome turn. She's just a sad lady, but she really gets to act when she we get to the wedding night. And so she's excited to come out of the out of the bathroom to the marriage bed. And again, we're gonna make it sound tawdry, but it's mm-hmm. not. And then he just like Shuts decimates her. her. Yeah. He decimates her. He destroys her. <sighs> it's awful. And makes her ashamed to be a woman and a sexual creature. And she just wants to be clean and the kind of woman who would please this predatorial monster. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that she's his like revival prop at his gatherings where he's preaching and fleecing people for money. Where she, he makes her denigrate herself, talk about her lust, her sin, her... And just tell lies. Like, I'm sure some of you think that you've been low, but you've never been low enough to force your husband to rob a bank and murder because you want perfume and paint for your face. Mm-hmm. And he came and he threw the money at me and said, here, money for your paint. And then the Lord came and intervened and we threw the money in the bottom of the river and he got hanged. But here I am as a, just like all this absolute bull. I'm just thinking, I'm just remembering the shot of her at the revival meeting with torches on. Torches, fire, flames, and him in the background riling up the crowd on every word she says. And then cut to... Her accusing her son of lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then all that's not good enough. He still he still murders her. Yep. There are a handful of shots from this movie that you will never forget if you watch it. There's the mo- the dead mom under the water, the hair the, this weirdly creepily beautiful shot of her hair, the yeah. hair on the corpse flowing mm-hmm. as she sits in a car. Really creepy. There's the shot of the reverend up in this weird attic like <laughs> bedroom, this gothic <laughs> cathedral yeah, of a, a bedroom. Cathedral, yeah. Arching into the sky, kind of striking a Shakespearean pose or something like that. While she lays there on the bed. There's the silhouette of the old woman with the shotgun. Looks, I mean, they had to be thinking Whistler's mother. It is just Whistler's mother with a shotgun. Yep. And that's the kind of iconography that the movie is trading in. There's this bizarro dream journey down the river. The, where the little girl sings. Where the little girl sings, and then you have all this blatantly fault, like fake sort of like imagery of a spider web and animals and spider web and a frog and iguana and a, maybe a turtle and yeah all kinds of weird stuff just kind of like we're going into some kind of primordial something uh, i guess i was talking about the performances i mean the children are quite good you can tell that neither one of them is actually like an actor actor but you can also tell that they spent a lot of time getting good performances out of them in the individual moments that they needed and then the old lady lillian gish is actually manages to personify good, which is a... It's an impossible feat. An impossible thing to do. And not in a way that makes the movie feel like it has a chip on its shoulder about religion, about men, about... Anything. Anything. I don't know. What other thoughts do you guys have? I I don't know what else to say. It's kind of movie that'll live with you. That's for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I guess I wish... I wish more movies were like this. It re- the Coen brothers and some of their movies actually are like this. A brother art that was actually not a bad pull in terms of the cartoonishness of it. The sort of, we're not saying this is what the actual history of the depression was like. We're saying this is what the iconography of the history of the depression was like. It, it's all kind of in a, f- a funhouse mirror to use one of those dumb critical phrases. I mean, it's all, it doesn't feel the need to 
be fashionably realistic to have the performance styles be fashionably realistic. It's, it's just very elastic. Right. And you can never quite tell when and how it's going to decide to be elastic. There are choices that are constantly being made that are unexpected or surprising. Mm-hmm. At least that was my experience watching it for the first time. It was just, I don't often, and I'm sure that that's, this is true for all of us in this room as much as, as many movies as we watch, as much time as we spent talking about them. I'm sure it's for our, uh, true for our listeners too. It's hard to find a movie that's going to have many surprises or choices that are too surprised. Like you might be expecting one thing, but you know that there's an alternative, right? And then you're pleasantly surprised when they pick the alternative mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. But there, this movie just has so many little unexpected, surprising choices that it makes that it just kind of keeps you on your toes or kept me on my toes the whole movie long. That was just a really fun, enjoyable... Well, it wasn't fun for the first <laughs> hour because all the choices were just like, ugh. <laughs> right. <laughs> Welcome to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to make you feel this one. Now we're going to make does such a good job of evoking both suspense and pain and the agony of certain aspects of childhood or stepping into the agony of this poor woman's life or whatever it is. Like it does such a good job of making you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And again, your experience of that is always going to be, well, there will be one cathartic payoff at the end of this Hitchcock movie mm-hmm. and then it'll be release. It never gives you anything. It just doesn't do any of that. But it does just start to let the pressure off and begin to provide payoffs and catharsis in its own little way. But what's so fun about it is it builds up so much tension. Mm -hmm. And this is what was, I think, kind of amazing. If you take just that last half hour, and you, I think maybe if you divorced it from the context of the hour of pain and tension that you went through, I don't know how primed you are emotionally to just start crying with the apple scene. Or with the other apple scene, Uh or with the lady and the girl, or anything like that. But man, it's just had you under so much tension that in uh, all the tension is pain and evil. Mm. And so the first little sign of goodness in this world is just like where the movie comes back and says there is goodness in this world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are good people, and love is real, and love exists. (laughs) And it's like, it does. Yay. <laughs> Merry Christmas, <laughs> yo, building and loan. <laughs> like, but, but unlike it's a wonderful life, the movie which goes for some very dark places. It's a wonderful life kind of promises you at the beginning that all right. that, that that happy payoff is coming. This, this movie, movie makes no promise. I mean, well, it, it sort of does. does with the old lady's face appearing in the. But you don't know what to make of that. You yeah. don't know if this is ironic or if it hates you, hates people who say what she. It says. doesn't know if she's a good person. It doesn't even let you know if she's a good person or a villain. She might be but just no. be another hypocrite. That's right. Yeah, that's right. This, it's not. just frames it all. In, but in a way that's sort of like, well, that was weird. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to make of that. I guess we'll find out as we get into this movie. Oh, here's a guy who goes around talking to God and murdering widows and prostitutes. Okay. (laughs) I guess we know this movie's perspective on religion. And that's just sort of where it leaves you. Like, and then you basically now your whole thinking of that opening scene is just all in the light of this right. monster who goes around talking to God and murdering women and children. Mm-hmm. Like, 
it's if you watched the second half of this movie, you would never predict that the first half of this movie came before it. And if you watched the first half of this movie, you would never predict where the second half of the movie was going to go. And they both work together really well. And like you said, Jake, they they complement each other in such a way that the sum is greater than the or the the whole is. You know what I'm yeah, saying? yeah. But man, weird movie. Yeah, and it is weird too. You're about to say the sum is greater than the parts, and. That's true. And at the same time, each little part is its own little bit of compelling that pushes you along and keeps you in the stupid movie. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. these little vignettes. There's the executioner who yeah. goes home and is right. sorry to have had to do the execution and goes and looks at his children and sees them in their innocence. And that kind of ties to everything, but also is just its own little thing, but also has a payoff at the end when he's very happy to do the execution for Mitchum. Yeah. Which you kind of love, actually, mm-hmm. or I did, because it's like, on the one hand, he went and he go. He went and he goed. He went and he hung the father of these two kids, and he's got his own two kids. But now he gets to go and hang the tormentor of these two kids. Right. Right. And so, I I just remembered a scene I'd forgotten, which is after the dad is hung, the kids are they're watching the other kids in town sing a song about <laughs> oh, hanging. Yeah. <laughs> they're just like ostracizing and mocking them. Right. Right there, it's children are cruel, and there's no adults. You don't even think about the fact that in the light of the way the movie ends, it's like the movie's saying, hey, no one's helping these kids either. Well, the boy goes no and stands outside the ice cream parlor or whatever where the mom <laughs> works. The proprietor is a nice old guy that's going to bring them some treats or something. But for whatever reason, the mom just waves them off. Get out of here. I forget. Hey, what and that- then the old lady comes out and is like, oh, so your mom's kept you out of school, huh? Right. <laughs> Where's the money at? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the yeah. little girl starts humming the song about hanging that the kids were using to make fun of them and doesn't understand the context of it. It's just like all these yeah. different little things tied together. Yep. And John's response is, eh, don't sing that song. <laughs> you better not sing that. You're not big enough yet. Yeah. You're not old enough yet. That's all he says to her about yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a pretty sweet way of handling it. If this whole subplot with Uncle whatever, do you think maybe is going to be John's protector, but he's just too much of an old washed up drunk to actually affect anything? Which, we find out the very first moment we meet him. Mm-hmm. He's just a drunk. But then you, but it, then it really gives you hope that he's going to mm-hmm. you know, stand in and do something. I thought he would beat Robert Mitchum to death with a paddle after that setup of him <laughs> hauling in that old mean fish or whatever right. that he didn't like and beating it with a paddle. <laughs> I, but then, you nope. see yell, yelling at it, you slimy I know. bait-stealing scum or There's whatever his line was. It's just like you bait the, like. Yeah. But he's another guy. He's another type. He's too overwhelmed by his own guilt, by his own low status, by his own whatever, by his own drunkenness, his own dissipated life, such that he's useless when the time comes, which is just another type of adult that these kids have to put up with before they they meet the. And he's just so selfish. All you can think about is what if they think I killed her? Right. Which is an absolutely asinine thing to think. Oh, yeah. Hey, look! I found a lady in the bottom of the river, tied up, and yeah. I'm, hey, guys! I'm an old drunk fisherman. <laughs> I obviously, uh, yeah. The first thing I would do is be able to kill this woman and put her in her car at the bottom of the river. And the second thing I would think to do is to come report it to the authorities. Right. But whatever demons drive him to think that, like it's just yeah. There's another thought I had, but I... well, that about wraps her up. Any no pun intended. Any final thoughts or anything? How many tattooed fingers out of 10 do you give this film, Ben? I give it 10. And 
Is there anyone that you wouldn't recommend it to or anyone you would recommend it to? Or if you're looking for this kind of thing, do. If you're not, don't. Or I don't know what to say. I think you just have to judge from our discussion. Yeah. It's not a movie for your kids, really. No, it's a very adult. Yeah, it's not a movie for kids. But it, does, it also doesn't really present as a movie no, for kids. No, it doesn't, although, although it's just weird. It is. It has a storybook quality that almost makes it feel like some yeah, kind of demented yeah, fairy tale or something. It, and there's a lot about it that'll go over your kids' heads. But... I wouldn't. No. <laughs> yeah. I weird. mean, like I said, I saw it as a young teenager, I think. And to me, it was a gothic horror story. You know, it was a story of a monster. Watching it again, I was like, oh, there's a whole other layer of horror to what these kids' predicament, to what the mom's going through, to the sexual stuff of it all that I I just, I suppose I was processing that those scenes were happening because they go on for a long time and what else are you supposed to do? But I just, this movie felt much bleaker in its early going this time than it did before. So Jake, how many tattooed fingers out of 10? I have to give it 10. I don't like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to watch this movie again, but (laughs) it is some kind of bizarro masterpiece that feels kind of undeniable. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. You know, I don't know. That's stupid. It's not anything it would ever rank in a top 10 or top 100. And I'm sure that there are, a thousand movies we've reviewed that I've not given a perfect score to, but for what it's it aims to do, it whatever it, that it is. It makes you want it makes you it made me sad that this was his one and only movie. Yeah. And I would have loved to see where he would have gone next. Would he have pushed into the artifice and the symbolism? Would he have got it out Pulled of the back? System? Would he have been able to do a more popular version of this sort of thing? Would he have Would he have become what, more Hitchcocky or less Hitchcocky or He's got a lot that he's working with, and he had a lot that he was trying to say. And it's, it feels like sort of the thing where it's like, either this is the one and only thing he wanted to say, or he needed to get a whole lot out of him so that he could go on and do the next great thing. In any case, it's a special, weird, special thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I give a 10 out of 10 as well. I think I think everybody who is interested in movies or if you sound, if you are interested in anything that we said you should go ahead and watch it it's 90 minutes it's one thing that's nice even though it is a pretty bleak and depressing evocation of evil it's an hour and it was made back when they just couldn't show certain things and so while there's a lot to sort of disturb you you're it's not rubbing your nose and certain things that the hbo miniseries night of the hunter would (laughs) i mean this movie could the if you if you took everything that's implicit and made it explicit, this could be a very bleak and depressing and violent and horrible and sexually horrific movie. And it's not actually that. You can watch this as an adult with a mature, basic maturity level and enjoy it. So yeah, I recommend it. I think it's great. Glad we did it. Glad it was my staff pick. I'm glad it held up after all these years. It's a very strange movie. You won't find anything like it. And For the first hour, I thought I was just going to pan the crap out of this movie. Right. Mm-hmm. I really did. I thought I was just going to be like, you know what? That was compelling. Couldn't turn my eyes away, but I hated it. I don't ever want to see it again, and I can't re- recommend anybody watch it. And it just kept going and turned on me. Yep. That's a really impressive feat. And it kind of makes you ask the question, like, if you were making the movie... Would you mitigate that first hour somehow? Would you add something to offset it a little bit, like because it is so much? Or do you just, uh, you know, as an artist, do you just need that first hour completely the way it is in order to get 
the the second. It's such a choice. And I think the choices really seem to have fallen along the lines of artistic integrity. Like he mm-hmm. wanted to do what he wanted to do and he yeah. was going to do it. But, and that is what makes it special. And also, you also it's understand completely why it didn't make any money. I mean, you people... understand why it didn't make money and you understand why he never got another gig. And you have to find ways to say what you want to say. Like, I respect him just making the artistic movie. Mm-hmm. You also, if you're going to, you got to find ways to say it so people can hear it. And yeah. I mean, I'm, it, I, like you said, though, I'm kind of glad he just did this because yeah. it, it does have integrity that it wouldn't if it was trying to fall more neatly into a genre. But that's the or, fight and that's the tension, yeah. right? Like, in the best, the guys that we always praise are the guys that can do that can take audiences along the general public along from A to B and still feel like they've maintained some level of art, artistic integrity and said something that was on their heart and still say. said something. Yeah. And maybe there's a, I don't know. This is just always, I think it's both. And I think I want to encourage artists to do that, to take into consideration the people you're making the art for and not be a snob and make it for nobody but yourself. I also think it would be nice if audiences could learn to be more, more literate and to take more chances and to go along for the ride and to trust, you know, hey, maybe this movie has something to say. Like, this is a movie that you could very easily just shut yourself out of, just say, nah, this isn't for me based on the first 15 minutes. But it really is going somewhere good. And if you let yourself get there, you, you might have a really special experience. So I think it's just both and. Mm-hmm. But hey, I mean, how many times have I just turned something off or closed a book because it's just not doing it for me and I don't care if it has a good payoff. Many, many. And how bad do I feel about that? Very little because life is short. Life is life short. Life is precious. With a book, it's different. A book's asking you to invest 40, invest hours. 40 hours of time. Mm-hmm. A movie like this is asking you to invest 90 minutes. Yeah, I think. And, and he made each scene gripping as it went. Yeah. It's not a boring movie. So no. simply the fact that each scene had its own don't look away quality that moved to the next scene that moved to the next that in and of itself held a promise. Right. Yeah, it did. And delivered and he delivered on the promise. So it wasn't a hope was not any part of the promise. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It would have been nice maybe if he could have promised hope in a more tangible way, but I don't know. I I like that. He didn't actually looking back on it. Well, the kids didn't have any, the kids didn't have any, that's right. And you didn't have any hope in the, you had false hope. Actually, he did give you hope. He gave you the old, the boating guy. The boat guy, uncle, whatever. And, yeah. Um, That's right. And, and you have it, some hope that the mom's going to come around. You have, it's like you have different hopes, but they keep getting <laughs> very horribly snuffed out. Right. Oh, look, the ice cream parlor guy. He's suspicious. Oh, his wife's totally emasculated him. So it doesn't matter what he thinks. <laughs> oh, man. I hate that lady so much. Lynch him! She's awful. (laughs) That is hilarious, but it's also the worst part. It's like, you hypocrite, you learn nothing. Now you just think that you're the righteous Avenger when you're the one that makes it possible for the reverend. You set the whole thing up. Right. You you were his principal tool. Yeah, I think she's the biggest monster in the movie. (laughs) She (laughs) is. She really is. Not hard to make that case. No, I felt like the movie wanted me to think that. Well, he's just the devil. He's just a force of evil. I mean, we can talk about his tragic backstory that's kind of implicit all we want. And really, he's just evil personified. He is hate. He she is, hate. is love. And so he doesn't really have a choice. He's just doing He's just doing what he was made to do. She's the But this old lady is the enabler. Right. She's with it, Without the old lady. She's his pawn. 
as we mm-hmm. see, without people like her, he has no power. He's just Zero nothing. Power. And so she really but the old is. lady's able to go and push Willa and make the marriage happen and able to smooth the wheels and able to get the people around to fall in line and she's talking up the reverend to absolutely everybody and building the crowd for him and allaying the suspicions of the men around who are like, I don't know, I don't know that I trust that guy. It's making him feel stupid for saying that. Like she is just creating a bubble, a reality distortion field around this dude. And then she's going to do it again instead of anyone instead of allowing anyone to learn a lesson from the reverend and his demise she's going to make everybody feel righteous as they join in you know a mob to wipe people Which is just her own guilt. Yeah. Uh man. Yeah, it is a rich movie. I, mean, I was it's... deceived. I am offended. <laughs> I partook in this evil. And so I must now be the righteous avenger. And the last shot of her is I've... she's got an axe and <laughs> like a yeah. Medieval. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in every part of her performance, the tone of her voice tells you that she's always either li- she's always lying and flattering, and that's how she lives. Yeah, she does these shrill like. <laughs> she's harsh with the with the children, and she lies and flatters to every flatters everyone else. It's amazing, right? Well, and she know we know she's not giving her husband any because she says something like that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> or if she does, she lays there and thinks about cans. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> subtext <laughs> some movies don't need it no, this movie has plenty plenty of subtext it's just <laughs> also like has plenty of text <laughs> oh well folks just watch it i guess i mean it's impossible i hope you were intrigued by our discussion but i can't imagine what you've made of it if you haven't seen the movie because it's a strange movie it, it, oh this is what i was going to say i just recovered my thread i don't want to pretend like this movie is a great religious movie because i don't think there is such a thing like i've never seen a movie where i'm just like oh they portrayed the christian religion in all its complexity the way that i want them to like there's never a movie that just captures it but is this movie actually maybe can you can you name a movie that is has a better, better christian it's a better it? quote-unquote christian movie i don't i can't think i'm not of sure one. that i can i can't can't think of anything off the top of my head that has a better christian in it right and a better Christian, a better, a more Christian perspective. And a more Christian use of scripture. Yeah. That's not just hokum. That, I mean, again, that's going to like maybe feel like it's overpromising when you watch the movie. Maybe. But, but I, and maybe I'll, I'll pull something. Maybe we'll pull something later. Maybe we'll be like, actually, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. No. But, but in terms of this woman is like, She's good. She disciplines the kids. She loves the kids all in ways that we can get on board with. There's not a moment that rings false. She's discipling. She's teaching them the Bible and taking them to church. She's trying to give them some hope in the world and give them a chance at a normal life. Like, And she's willing to fight and defend and protect them. And and she's got her own broken, sad story, but she's not going to let it get in the way of doing the right thing. Right. And we don't even really need to know exactly what it is. Don't need to know. Just got to know that... Here's a woman who's just going to look out for the lost children of this world when she has a chance to, as best as she can. Yeah, it's really weird. It's just weird that a movie would get so many things right. You can think of all the places where it could be weird, where it could be hypocritical, where it could be where we'd just be like, eh, I don't, mm-hmm. okay, I'll take her as a symbol, but really, If you had this woman in your church, you would actually just love her. Right. You'd just be really happy that she was there. Oh, yeah. You'd not, like, there are sometimes where you have these sorts of things in, a movie that are movified and you're like, 
okay, she works, or this person, this character works in this movie. But in real life, no way. Insufferable. Yeah. Right. No, no, this is actually just like the pillar of your church in real life. If this woman, one-to-one, translated to your church today, she would be a pillar in your church, and you would love her. And I, unless there's some like wacko theology that she didn't say, but all she does is quote the Bible and tell the Bible stories and do the right thing. So, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. Can you think of a better movie? Like, she, she rolls out discipline. She spanks the kids. Like, the movie's not embarrassed about that. But also, there's multiple scenes where she doesn't just fly off the handle, where she doesn't just go for the switch, where she has a nuanced, like, I want these kids to grow up. I want them to understand. I want them to... Uh, she's all, able to... All our gifts are thoughtful because they're about building the kids up into who they need to be. They see the kid. They see their des- that kid's desire. We- the first thing that John does after John's dad dies, and he's got all the money, is he goes to, he's walking by a store and sees a watch in the window. And watches don't mean for us now what they did then, but watches meant being the man. Right. The moment when dad gives you his watch is the moment when he says you've become a man. That's just a thing. And so John's like trying to figure out, like, I got to be the man. Maybe I'll take some of the money out of this doll and go buy this watch. But this woman at the end sees John and sees that he's trying to play the man. And she's like, yeah, no, you can't. You're a little boy. I'm going to treat you like a little boy who's becoming a man. And so I'm going to get you a watch for Christmas. Yeah, it's just, you could you could imagine the movie that would do the, well, he just needs to be a kid again. So here's the spankings, whatever. You could, And you could imagine the movie where everybody else wants to spank him. And she's like the... Yeah. I'm, I'm going to finally see like the real you. You could, you, we've seen a million movies that here, go, John, you take the shotgun, right? <laughs> right. You can exactly. see, all... <laughs> you can see, but yeah. for this movie to actually in its, in its spare little 20 minutes that we spend with that character or whatever, for it to do everything that it does. And then to do the same stuff or different, very, the pubescent girl version with that Ruby character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And have everything that is said and unsaid about Ruby and her longings and it, it it does a lot. And then even to establish Ruby in her own sort of ecosystem with she's got those two boys that she talks to and they're just clearly like predators. Right. They're just predators that you instantly hate upon seeing them. Right. So you spend like no time with them, but you know what they are, what they represent to her, who they are in the world, you know, what they're gonna be when they're older. And you understand what's twisted about her desire, but you also see how innocent she is like the thing that the rev actually uses to seduce her is a dumb little movie magazine and some ice cream of all things she yeah. she wants to be a woman but she's not like she these are little girl things that he's using mm-hmm. man it's just like it's like an onion there's just a little lot of layers to this movie yeah i'm trying to think of the movie that does a religious character better or does religion better and i don't want to oversell it because it's like you're not going to find any deep doctrine you're basically find good versus evil and some but like one of you said this is the only movie with a character like this where you might actually want this character in your church yeah as opposed to well i like what she stands for or right 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 all right we already rated this sucker but then there was more to talk about if you want to support the three suckers that do this podcast you can go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movie and support this podcast (laughs) All right, until next time. They abide. <laughs>